The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Warm welcome to Scorebox with myself and Karen, of course. Uh, Jeff will join us a little bit later on. Uh, UBS, though, top of the headlines. Fourth quarter pre-tax profits sliding 13% as the Swiss lender increases litigation provisions amid a French tax case. Uh, we're going to hear from the CEO, Ralph Harmers, that interview with Jeff. Uh, we'll hear from him at 8 a.m. CET. Wall Street wrapping up a rocky month in the red, with the S&P clocking its worst month in almost two years. The Richmond Fed President Thomas Barkin telling CNBC he's not focused on the stock market. If something started to affect financial stability, that's something to pay attention to. But I don't think I'd pay attention to the stock market per se. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson stands defiant, lashing out at critics and refusing to step aside but does apologise to lawmakers after the Grey report into Downing Street parties finds serious failures of leadership. I get it and I will fix it. I know what the issue is. Yes, Mr Speaker, yes, yes. It's whether this government can be trusted to deliver. And I say, Mr Speaker, yes, we can be trusted. Sony snaps up Bungie, the gaming studio behind mega-franchises Halo and Destiny, in a deal worth $3.6 billion. Uh, good morning. I hope you're all very well this morning. Um, let's go straight into this UBS story and we'll, we'll um, have a little look at this company uh, from the bottom up. Now, the fact of the matter is, from the bottom up, this company has had a very strong rally, like a lot of financials, off the March 2020 low. Uh, then it was trading around about 8 Swissy. Now it is trading over double that at around about 17.1 Swiss francs. Uh, per share. In terms of valuation, it's just under one in terms of its price to book. It's just under nine in terms of its uh, price earnings going forward as well. In terms of the numbers today, I think it's a very mixed bag as well. Uh, And there's a couple of things that have already um, really shone to me here as well, including the fact that the pre-tax profit, 1.729 billion, down 13%, as we mentioned in the headlines, year on year, is because of an increase in litigation provisions of uh, 740 million US dollars for a French tax case. Now, the company is talking about net profit attributable to shareholders, a very solid figure actually, 1.348 billion US dollars, uh, compared with expectations for under 1 billion. So a positive there on the net profit attributable, uh, but a negative because of the increase in litigations. Then we get to the cost income ratio. And it's something I've looked at and and I've annoyed CEOs about this uh, many times in the finance sector over the years. Uh, And I think the cost income ratio is pretty awful. This is my analysis, not anyone else's at the moment. I haven't seen what the analysts are saying. But when you have a fourth quarter cost compared to your income ratio of 80.5%, that looks to me way, way above 
A, where the bank would want it to be, B, where some of the peers are trading at. And I've just taken a little look at some of the big US peers, because let's be honest about it, that is the gold standard. And I've been looking at cost-income ratios in the 50s and 60s for some of the biggest US investment banks. For instance, the most recent figure I've seen from JP Morgan Chase was a cost-income ratio somewhere in the region of 59%, significantly lower than what we're seeing at UBS. Now, UBS is addressing this. They are saying they want to get that down. It will be going forward a target of 70 to 73 compared with their previous target of 75 to 78. But ladies and gentlemen, we can set all kind of targets that we want. If we're missing those targets and having an 80% cost income ratio, I think that's quite bad. Now, elsewhere, there's some good stuff in here as well. UBS setting a target uh, for 15 to 18% return on CET1 capital going forward compared with a previous target of 12 to 15. That is clearly a very solid good figure as well. Uh, good figures as well uh, coming in the fact that uh, they're also increasing investment assets to more than $6 trillion across wealth management, asset management and PNC business compared with $4.6 trillion currently managed as well. So some big lofty targets in there uh, and also a net zero target on emissions, which is very positive, bringing that forward as well. Um, net zero emissions in its own operations by 2025 have uh, $236 billion net zero investment by 2030 as well. So they are positives, but again, I would say it's a very mixed bag. But my dear friend Karen's also been looking at numbers. I'm interested to see what you think, Karen. Uh, good morning, Steve. Yes, I think uh, what you've seen on the, the overall Q4 number, though, it is a beat. I mean, this is more than analysts had been penciling in. So the 863 that uh, was in a poll out there in the marketplace, and this number that's crossed at the 1.348 billion number is a huge number, and that is certainly well and above expectations. I think you're right to pull apart certain bits of business on the cost to income ratio, and you know, effectively, banks can always do better. But if you think of the context of this, you've got right over at uh, Credit Suisse, in fact, having all sorts of issues over the course of the year and not getting any better into year end, all that UBS needs to present here is a clean bill of health. And maybe with this headline number, it might just be enough to convince investors that they've bet with the right horse in the race here, not with the one that is playing catch up that is trying to get back onto the, into the saddle, so to speak, because it's had a series of missteps. UBS here has been the clear front runner and I think of that top line number, that uh, is a, a fairly strong indictment of what it's been seeing. Don't forget there was a tailwind though coming into these numbers, very strong quarter in the third quarter around wealth management. In fact, the best quarter in the, in the company's history. So they've been benefiting from that trading activity that they'd seen that had propelled clients into the markets and to enjoy some of the market activity, which meant the wealth management business was strong. So I think it is just you know worth pointing out that it has been a terrific period of time for UBS. Uh, of course, uh, that has meant that there's been a, a repurchase of shares that's rewarded shareholders 2.6 billion worth of shares over the course of 2021 and they intend to repurchase up to 5 billion of shares during 2022 and as we know that can be a, a positive aspect when it comes to the share price actions do. Yeah and I, I think that's a, a very valid point talking about that um, share buyback as well. I'm always amazed what companies that have had a big rally off their lows and why they would want a share buyback as well. And I'm just literally, again, doing the same exercise I did earlier on and comparing with the benchmark, which is the US peers as well. UBS shares are still below the level they were trading 
way before the financial crisis. Their high of the last five years is just under 20 Swissy per share, 19.325. As I mentioned, they're currently trading before. Today's move uh, are at 17 Swissy, so still fairly decent way below their high of the last five years. Whereas if you look at, again, the, the peers I'm comparing with in the United States, in recent days before the most recent sell-off as well, you're talking about a massive outperformance uh, compared with the five-year average of the US banks as well. So a long way to go, of course, very different interest rate environment here in Europe. We must remember that as well. Uh, the US banks have got the prospect, perhaps salivating, uh, of having uh, greater net interest margins going forward. That is something that with the ECB and, of course, uh, the, the Swiss central bank as well, the SMB, there is no chance in the very short term uh, of having interest rate hikes and boosting that interest, interest margin. So it is a very different environment that they will be working in. But I can tell you something, no matter how hard Karen and I are working on these numbers now, Mr. Cutmore is working harder on them. In fact, he's got a great interview, which I believe he's doing literally as we speak uh, with the UBS CEO, Ralph Harmers. Now, what we'll do is we'll turn that round. Uh, Jeff will pick out the best bits. I'm sure it's all good, really. Uh, and we will bring that to you in exactly to the minute, 52 minutes time, 8-C-E-T. Karen. Steve, you sparked a very interesting line there, I think, around the impact of the interest rate environment. I've just found a line here around the sensitivity to interest rate movements. And UBS is saying as the end of uh, last year, they estimate that a parallel shift in yield curves by 100 basis points, so we're talking 1% here, could lead to a combined increase in annual net interest income of approximately 1.8 billion US dollars in global wealth management and personal and corporate banking in the year after such a shift. So they're talking about the upside of a 100 basis point move, just confirming 1.8 billion US dollar pop is what they expect to see. So that gives you some hard and fast numbers to work with. Uh, let's uh, push on and uh, talk about uh, the Fed as markets are digesting new lines from several key Fed speakers. Kansas City Fed President Esther George said a more aggressive approach to balance sheet reduction could allow for fewer rate hikes. Georgia voting member this year conceded that the transition could be, quote, bumpy. San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly backed a March hike and rejected accusations that the Fed is behind the curve. And Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic said he expects just three-quarter point rate hikes this year, but that after March, the committee is, quote, not on any set progression. The president of the Richmond Fed has told CNBC the U.S. economy is ready for rate hikes as inflation sits at a near 40-year high of 7%. Thomas Barkin said the business community should welcome higher rates, but he wouldn't be drawn on the path ahead for tightening. It's hard to know uh, where the curve is when it's hard to see the arc uh, of inflation. So I just come back to the question of positioning. I'd like us to be uh, better positioned. That position is somewhere closer to neutral, certainly, than we are now, and I think the pace of that just depends on the uh, uh, pace of inflation. Our mandate is very clear on unemployment and inflation. We also play an important role in financial stability through our oversight of the banking system. And so I would see everything through that lens. And if something started to affect financial stability, that's something to pay attention to. But I don't think I'd pay attention to the stock market per se. Per se, there's the qualification right at the end there. I don't, could have said I don't pay attention to stock markets, but it was I don't pay attention to stock markets per se. And I think that was the, the, the caveat there, the get out of jail perhaps as well. Well, this is what the markets did in January. 
big declines across the board, but it could have been a lot worse as well. As I mentioned to you earlier on, some of the worst moves we've seen, for instance, January uh, was the worst move we've seen on the S&P since 2009. Uh, the Nasdaq, it was the worst since November 2008. But what drove markets in January? Well, it was, of course, geopolitical concerns, Omicron concerns, uh, interest rate concerns, uh, and perhaps the, the valuations looked a bit frothy. Have any of those factors disappeared for February? And the answer is maybe. Omicron appears, despite the enormous numbers of caseloads we're seeing on a global basis, it appears to be less of a concern at the moment, which means that people are extrapolating that COVID is less of a concern. But we'll run with that for the moment as well. So that's one factor that might be better in February as well. Are valuations better? Well, ergo, the fact that the markets have come down and earnings have remained relatively robust as well means that perhaps valuations look a bit better. Are geopolitical concerns abating? Absolutely not at the moment, of course. Great tension, uh, of course, surrounding Ukraine, surrounding what's going on with Russia there as well, and its relationship with the West. Boris Johnson uh, will be speaking to the Russian Prime Min- uh, President at some stage. He's off to Ukraine today, uh, the UK Prime Minister, perhaps with a bit of welcome relief from his domestic problems as well. Uh, and of course, interest rate concerns. Well, we've been concerned about them going forward, but they haven't actually had those rate hikes yet, have we, in terms of from the Federal Reserve. We've seen one from the Bank of England, a very small one. We're going to get a first back-to-back hike we believe this week since 2004 so a lot of those factors that took the markets down in January are still going to be there despite this rally we saw uh, in the previous session at the tail end of January in the US markets it was a very solid rally as well and the Nasdaq had an amazing two-day rally it was up 3.4 percent yesterday the S&P 500 1.9 percent I'm just going to remind you of something I always look at because I think it's stunningly important and that is the jobs openings and labor turnover survey jobs market survey the jolt survey have a look at it record quits last time round of 4.5 million i think it is absolutely pivotal for looking at the trends in the u.s employment market let's take a look at technology there were three stocks yesterday that had an absolutely uh, extraordinary rally including the likes of netflix now they've come a long way we know that as well but the three i'm going to point out to you can you see them of course you can. Tesla, which has been under a vast amount of pressure in January, huge declines out, over 20%, put on 10% yesterday as well. Netflix, real concerns about the slowdown in subscriber growth there as well, and the costs remain high, 11% higher. And the third was Spotify. Now, there's this big argument going on uh, regarding uh, Mr. Rogan, regarding Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, what the Sussexes aren't and aren't doing as well. Have a look at the story. It's absolutely fascinating. It talks a lot about whether it's about free speech or actually is it propaganda for those who are anti-vaxxers? I think it's a good debate. I think there's merit on both sides of the argument. So let's not be binary about this one. Anyway, the Spotify story uh, having a bit of a a relief there up 13.5%. Let's take a look at the treasuries. I mentioned to you that rates haven't gone up yet. Well, they have in the real world, haven't they? And as such, 1.775 is way higher than, of course, the lows we hit in the last 12 months or so. But again, I will point out this is no higher on the 10-year yield than we saw in the spring of last year, despite the fact now we have some of the highest inflation levels we've seen since I was a very young man in the 1980s. Let's find out what Van Linders thinks. He is Senior Investment Strategist at Kempen now. Eust, good morning to you, sir. You've heard everything I've got to say. More importantly, what do you think about these markets? Yeah, I think um, it, it, it's it's a lot is about the Fed and about the change the Fed has made over the past weeks and months. And we're looking at whether we are sort of at the peak hawkishness of the Fed. 
And I think we're, we're getting close. Uh, we're now discounting, I think, almost uh, five rate hikes for this year. Uh, there is the possibility that the first rate hike is not going to be 25, but 50. I think it's 25, but 50 is uh, is becoming a possibility. There's the possibility of back-to-back -back rate hikes also in the U.S. So we're getting close. And um, uh, yeah, so far, a few times that, that we thought we were there, we were at the peak hawkishness of the Fed. We got an even increasing, increasingly hawkish uh, comments from Fed or, or from Mr. Powell himself during the press conference uh, uh, last week. So um, we're, we're probably not fully there yet, but we're getting close. And I think that is, uh, that is uh, something that the market has been digesting. It's clear from the overall market moves. It's clear from what we see uh, underlying in terms of uh, technology versus, uh, versus other sectors, for the financial, for example, or uh, value versus growth. So I think that this has been the main issue for for the market in in basically uh, basically this year. Used is the market complacent about rate hikes as well? I, uh, Raphael Bostic, as you were alluding to there, talking about potential, not saying they're going to, but the potential for a 50 basis point hike. I, again, I'm of a vintage where I remember 50 basis point hikes as, as de rigueur, as the normal uh, modus operandi as well. But the fact of the matter is, even if we get the five you're talking about, let's say we get six, that only takes us to still, still sub 2% uh, on, on US interest rates when you've got an average hourly earnings. Let's even forget about CPI. Average hourly earnings will be even way over double that as well. I still wonder whether the central bankers are way behind the curve. Yes, that's, that, is, that is possible. And uh, I, I don't think the market is complacent anymore, given what we've seen in the past weeks. Uh, a lot has been, has been discounted. I think um, uh, so the reason that we've, that we've not fallen further or that we have a rebound is that we still have, have the prospect of growth. And um, if, you, if you have sort of these, these kind of corrections uh, without going into recession, this looks like a pretty normal correction. If we do get growth, if we do get the Omicron variant receding and people uh, being able to spend again on services and, and et cetera, and you get that growth in from, from the second quarter in the third quarter, uh, that, that, would, that would clearly be, uh, be supportive. Um, so I, I wouldn't, I think I think some some has been discounted. Your question is: it going to be enough? That that is going to be interesting. Yeah, maybe not. Uh, uh, the way things look now, that even at the end of year and maybe even at the end of next year, you'll definitely have very low real rates, real Fed funds rate, maybe even negative. Although um, inflation has proven has proven to be more sticky than everyone thought. Um, uh, but I, I think it will come down. It will come down through oil prices, through base effects there and so on. And that labor market, that labor market is very tight. You've mentioned the jolts reports, but uh, uh, a lot of measures on the labor market are, are, are very tight. But we also know that um, uh, the labor force is still much lower than it was pre-pandemic. And some of these people might have retired early. But we also know that labor participation is cyclical. So once the labor market, uh, uh, yeah, as long as it stays this tight, some people will come back and, and you might have some alleviation there. So I, I, I do agree it's a tricky, tricky situation with what we now see slower growth, very high inflation, a very, a very aggressive Fed. But we do have those, we do have the underlying strength of the economy. It's also where, where Powell pointed right. to. Um, we do have the earnings season currently, which is beating again. 
uh, and that that's I think that's the reason why the market is not down. It's not going down any further. Yusuf, if we can put these pieces together and talk about what is it going to take to settle the market. You mentioned the data there that the market's still looking at. Of course, we've got these Fed meetings in March. Still seems like a key time frame for the markets to be aiming for earnings season to digest the latest impact of Omicron and supply chain issues there. So three big factors. But if you look at the, the weight of money that's moving around intraday, it is huge and the transaction volume is massive. And you know, here a report that Franklin Templeton's multi-asset management division normally meets once a month. They're meeting every week to decide where to allocate. So it does tell you about just how much is going on under the surface on these markets. What will it take to settle things down? Because it feels as though we, we may not be there yet because of a, a bit of a correction that might have done it in the past. It just may not work this time around. Now, I, I think we definitely have to get uh, signs of a peak in inflation. That peak has been postponed uh, for months. Uh, I do. I think we do have to get that sign in, in, in February, maybe the February data. Um, uh, that's that's one thing. If you have that, then you have a sort of an assessment uh, as to, to how fast the Fed will have to move. Because now we're saying, yes, they're, they're behind the curve and that inflation, that peak is being postponed, et cetera. So the peak hawkishness is also postponed. So I think first inflation, then the Fed, uh, uh, Omicron, uh, uh, most likely. Yeah, and then you have the, the geopolitical issues um, that, that seems to... I think that's that's been more in the background uh, and that seems to be settling down a little bit. But I think I would say first inflation and then the Fed and then we can can look ahead uh, again at the underlying fundamentals and the growth and, and earnings, etc. Yus, we must go, but thank you so much for running through some ideas on the market for us. So Yus Van Linders with us, Senior Investment Strategist at Kempton. Our UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson is fighting on Rosanna joins us from Westminster to tell us a little bit more about this. Rosanna, good morning to you. Good morning, Karen. Yes, still to come on the show, Prime Minister Boris Johnson stands accused of a failure of leadership, but still clinging on to support from his backbenchers. We'll discuss what came out of that Sue Gray report next. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has defied calls to quit and appears to have won the backing of his Conservative Party peers. Johnson apologised before Parliament over findings in the Sue Gray report that the Prime Minister held a series of parties at his offices during COVID lockdowns. Johnson told MPs there was no excuse for the parties hosted at his offices and that he understood the public's anger. I will address its findings in this statement, but firstly I want to say sorry and i'm sorry for the things we simply didn't get right and also sorry for the way that this matter has been handled and it's no use saying that this or that was within the rules and it's no use saying that people were working hard this pandemic was hard for everyone i get it 
and I will fix it. And I want to say, and I want to say to the people of this country, I know what the issue is. Yes, Mr. Speaker. Yes, yes. It's whether this government can be trusted to deliver. And I say, Mr. Speaker, yes, we can be trusted. Yes, we can be trusted to deliver. And let's get out to Rosanna at Westminster for more. Rosanna, the Prime Minister looks like a cat with nine lives at this point. But the reality is Scotland Yard detectives are poring over Partygate photos from Downing Street. So could a leadership challenge come later? Uh, that's exactly right, Karen. The Teflon leader, some are calling him now. We've been talking about this 1922 committee for some time, this process by which we need 54 letters of no confidence in the Prime Minister uh, from his own party in order to trigger that leadership challenge. It's a closely guarded secret, that number. We don't know how close we are yet, but we do continue to hear many uh, public statements from Conservative MPs saying they've lost faith and confidence, not least in the parliamentary chamber itself yesterday. A former Prime Minister, Theresa May, even standing up at one point and grilling Prime Minister Boris Johnson on what the nature of the parties were at Downing Street. Now, a number of inquiries have been underway. You'll remember that we just kept hearing this line again and again from the Johnson government, wait for the Sue Gray report. Well, we got it yesterday, heavily redacted as expected. The reason for this being that the Met Police is now uh, conducting its own criminal investigation in which they asked Sue Gray, the senior civil servant, not to make reference to certain parties because they're under criminal investigation. So what we found out in the report was there were some 16 parties over 20 months at number 10. Uh, some 12 of those are currently being investigated by police. And on the side, we found out that, uh, that, that 300 photos from inside Downing Street from these parties have been handed over to the Met as part of their investigations as well. Now, as you said there, we had a very contrite Prime Minister in, uh, in Parliament on Monday. Uh, apologies once again, but certainly no resignations. Talking about the job he's been elected to do. In terms of what happens next going forward, it, they have have promised Downing Street to eventually release the Sue Gray report in full, unredacted. We just don't know when that is going to happen. They've also promised a shake-up within Number 10 Downing Street because what this report found was a fractured and confused leadership arrangement. They said excessive consumption of alcohol and, and a Downing Street office, which is obviously the primary residence of the Prime Minister, but also the offices of his staff, running more like, quote, a small government department. So Johnson promising there will be a shake-up inside number 10. They will release that report in full. And then in terms of other business, we heard him speak a lot in Parliament about Brexit, about vaccine delivery, these things that he considers to have done very well in his leadership so far. Uh, but the other thing was Ukraine, of course, this large geopolitical issue overhanging everything at the moment. Johnson's set to travel to Ukraine later. He was going to be travelling with Foreign Secretary Liz Truss. However, she confirmed late last night that she's actually tested positive for COVID, so she won't be on that trip either. But on, on this trip, Steve, uh, we're going to expect uh, Boris to be speaking to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. Uh, he's also promised a phone call with Vladimir Putin, this idea of, quote, accelerating diplomatic efforts, though some say it's more of a distraction and a, def and a deflection. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.